Thank you, Jim. Um, it's a very odd feeling to be both a visitor and at home. I spent so much of my career at Columbia, and it, I can give you a small bit of historical insight. I was appointed to the faculty in 1965. This building was called the Men's Faculty Club. I was not allowed as a graduate student to cross the threshold of the building without a male escort. And it was only the year that I was appointed to the faculty that they allowed women members, but it was still called the Men's Faculty Club. So time passes, things are different. Um, probably nobody in this room even remembers that historical um, byway of Columbia's history. You do. <laughs> As uh, Jim said, I'm going to talk today about the book that my three co-authors and I uh, published just this year called Educating Scholars. Uh, Ron Ehrenberg, my longtime collaborator, would have been here also, but he tore his Achilles tendon. And I have to say, not due to any of the the dangers of teaching economics, but rather the domestic perils that afflict all of us. Graduate education in the humanities seems to be a subject of continuing anguish. In addition to the spate of books that have been published in the last year or two, just this week, the Chronicle of Higher Education published a special supplement called Broken, the Crisis in a Graduate Education in the Humanities. So the subject is not a dead one. But is there a crisis? Well, if there is one, it's been going on a very, very long time. I think at least since the 1960s, when another Columbia person, whose name was Bernard Berelson, who had been head of the Bureau of Applied Social Research, uh, did a book called Graduate Education in the United States, 1960, um, in which he essentially pointed to the difficulties that PhDs and PhD programs in the humanities were encountering. The same, many of the same problems afflicted the enterprise then as do now. Now, what are they? First and foremost is the really quite agonizing job market that young PhDs in the humanities confront when they get their degrees, and those who don't get their degrees also confront with far fewer um, uh, resources at their command. Second is the length of time it takes to get a PhD in the humanities. Depending on how you count, it takes something between eight to 10 years, and uh, that is considerably more than in the sciences or social sciences, and that has been the case forever. If you think about it, what that means is half the people who take PhDs in the humanities take longer than eight to 10 years. And, this, and the 10-year PhD isn't a statistical rarity. People 
don't get their degrees until they are often well into their 30s, and they don't start their careers seriously until they're well into their 30s. Attrition rates are very high. About half the people who enroll for a PhD in the humanities never finish. Need I tell you, financial support that students have access to is generally insufficient. Um, the stipends that students receive are lower than those in the sciences and social sciences. And it really was only in the 90s when the um, best endowed institute universities and those that were had high aspirations, engaged in a very, very, very vigorous conflict for the best graduate students as they saw them and ratcheted up the uh, stipends that students were offered and the number of years that these stipends were offered. But that's only in the elite institutions. It is not the case that students who are taking degrees in the humanities in the public universities or in those below the richest segment of get anything like a stipend which is livable and for that most of them teach and do other kinds of chores. There are other complaints. There are too many students being admitted, it said. There are too many departments, it said. The curriculum is diffuse. The curriculum is scattered. The curriculum is, leads students to be excessively specialized. There's insufficient interdisciplinarity or too much interdisciplinarity. There is an absence of training and teaching, except we're also told that graduate students teach too much. Um, the faculty comes in for attacks, as in the case of uh, Luke Manon's recent book, who, and they are accused of being resistant to change. They're accused of convincing students that the only decent careers that they can have are as full tenured professors in major universities, thereby setting up a situation in which most students fail. Well, in short, there's a lot about graduate education in the humanities that are cited at causes for alarm. Um, they've been around for some time. I don't think all of them are e of equal importance, nor do I think that all of them coincide with reality. But I do think that the current very, very difficult job market has brought about a change in quality as well as a change in quantity. The scarcity of jobs for young people in the humanities is really, really very, very serious. And one can only hope that uh, we will not have a, a lost generation of scholars who simply find it impossible to continue even though they have the credentials and the talent and the drive. Now the research I'm going to talk about touches in varying measures on all of these complaints. Trying to find solutions for at least some of them was the focus of a major undertaking of the Mellon Foundation, which um, was aimed at 
making graduate education in the humanities, and I use this word very carefully, more effective. Not necessarily better, although we hope that was the case, but that the resources that were spent on graduate education could be used in ways that produced outcomes which were uh, more worthwhile than they were before. As Jim said, this enterprise was called the Graduate Education Initiative, which is such a mouthful that I'm going to call it the GEI. In-house, we call it the GEI. And I'm sorry if it calls to mind some medical uh, intervention, but that's what it is. First, I'm going to tell you about how the GEI came into being, then about how the research was done, then about what we found, and last, about the lessons we learned. I don't know how many of you are accustomed to hearing a talk about social science research, much less accustomed to reading such material. Um, I promise I'll avoid as much as possible methodological commentary, statistical complexities. You'll see there is no PowerPoint. There are no slides. There are no equations. There's none of the usual um, uh, decoration that I and my tribe are accustomed to using. I want to say one more thing about uh, my role in this study, which is a little odd. Social scientists don't usually both do research on a subject and at the same time be major players in it. It just isn't done. It's assumed that um, there is a good deal of conflict of interest involved in such a double role. And being a participant and an observer is tough going. Well, it is. And um, I tried very hard not to make this anything like a puff piece for the Mellon Foundation. I think what you'll find if you look at the book it is no pee into the foundation, nor to the graduate education initiative, and essentially we try to tell it like it is. Now, how did the GEI come into being? I will take you back to 1989. 1989 was the year that Bill Bowen, William G. Bowen, left Princeton to become president of the Mellon Foundation. I understand Bill gave a talk here a couple of weeks ago. That's correct. Well, he's still kicking, as you no doubt saw. In any event, um, while he was at Princeton, it became clear to him that the humanities in general and graduate education in the humanities was a uh, well, first, that it had a lot of problems, and second, it was very expensive to, to uh, provide compared to the numbers that were being produced. Bill Bowen is an economist, and he thinks in terms of the nature of the relationship between investments and outputs. So when he came to Mellon, it was quite natural that he would, on his agenda, think about ways that graduate education in the humanities might be made more effective. 
since Mellon had, after all, always had as one of its major commitments the fostering of the humanities and the um, uh, nourishing of graduate education. Well, a year later, Neil Rudenstein, who had also been at Princeton, arrived at Mellon, and the two of them began work on a research project that was eventually published called In Pursuit of the PhD. And what they did there was to look at the nature of PhD production across all fields and around the United States in order to see whether they could understand what the problems were that were specific to the humanities and which ones were characteristic of all fields and most important, what, if anything, could be done about these problems. What they found was that students in the humanities take longer than anybody else. Well, that finding seems to continue to occur in whatever research is reported. They also found that money matters. People that have fellowships are more likely to complete their degrees. No big surprise. But there were some surprises, and that is that students who had multi-year fellowships, who had Danforth fellowships, or who had Mellon fellowships, were no more likely to finish faster than anybody else. And that's a disturbing finding. So that was one item that was put on their agenda. The second was that people who had fellowships and who presumably had talent and sufficient funds, if they studied in large departments, were much less likely to finish and to finish quickly than the people that studied in small departments. Well, that was a bit surprising. One wouldn't have thought that the department characteristic uh, departmental characteristics of side would make such a difference. But if you think about it, in small departments, students are likely to get somewhat more attention. They're also likely to have stronger bonds with their fellow students. They also are uh, probably uh, under greater scrutiny than they are in big departments. And so the department size issue uh, was another matter that Bowen and Rudenstein kept in mind. And they concluded that if they were to revamp aspects of, the, of graduate education, what they had to do was figure out a way to provide more money for graduate students and also to try to convince departments that they had to think much harder about attrition and long times to degree, and also how to organize themselves so that students would not somehow disappear into the pro proverbial woodwork. Just again, I, when I started graduate work in sociology, I think that there were probably 400 students ranging from years one to who knows what um, who were members of my department. It's very easy to get lost in such a situation. And it wasn't only true of Columbia. It was true of the University of Chicago, and it was true of Berkeley, and other major and very good universities. Well, so here we are. 
They have these ideas about the graduate education initiative. More money was needed. Faculty members had to be persuaded that they should think about how they were organizing graduate study. And this began in 1991. Actually, it began earlier, because in 1990, they started to collect data on students in departments in the humanities so that there would be some way of judging whether those who were to be in this, in this new experiment were going to be any different from those who preceded them. At that time, again a historical note, most universities, 1991, didn't keep most of their records in computerized files. They didn't have any idea how long it took people who they were giving doctorates to actually got their degrees. And they certainly didn't know how many had dropped out. So the access to anything like solid information was very, very unusual. A few universities were more, more technically sophisticated, but most weren't. And to the extent that Mellon had to send people to universities to collect the hand handwritten files and take off of those files the dates at which people got their degrees and how long it took them and what fields they were in and so on and so on. In 1991, the first grants were made. They ended in 2001, so in one sense the project landed, but, uh, lasted 10 years. Actually, it lasted 19 years because from beginning to end, with all of the data that the universities actually collected for the foundation, it took that long because you want to, it's not just good enough to find out when a student started, you need to know how long it takes for them to finish. And since it takes so long for many students to finish, it had to be a very lengthy process. A total of 31,000 students ended up in our database. That's a lot of students. Um, their progress from the time they entered graduate study to the time they left the university, either with a degree or without, was tracked. With those numbers, I really felt I was dealing with a cast of thousands, because I was dealing with a cast of thousands. In addition to that, not in addition, within the 31,000, there were 7,400 students who were, in fact, subjects of the GEI, who were in departments that got the money and made changes that were supposed to improve the effectiveness of graduate education. We also tracked, for reasons I'll explain, students in what we called control departments, and I understand there's even such a person here who, when she was taking her degree at the University of North Carolina, was good enough to fill out one of our questionnaires. Uh, I'll explain about that soon. And that survey uh, that she took was put into the field because it just seemed not adequate to only base our information on the, what were essentially the quantitative data that universities could provide us. 
although in addition I got reports every year from every department, um, which were not all um, what I would call very complimentary uh, about what they thought about the Mellon Foundation's program, nor uh, were they always um, so optimistic. Although I think I learned from many of them that optimism um, was also not to be trusted. Anyway, in addition to all of that, the graduate education initiative was very costly. I don't know how you will re react to the following numbers. Mellon spent over $85 million over the course of the study on essentially providing funds for the graduate students who were in the 49 departments over 10 years that were part of the study. And then when the, when the GEI was over, there were, in addition, endowment grants that were made to the universities so that some pieces of the GEI could be maintained. So that, that added up to a very significant amount of money. This initiative was to be a prototype. It was supposed to be something that could be copied by other universities. And so the question was, if you were planning a prototype, what kinds of universities would you choose? Well, they decided that the universities would be the ones that were leaders in the field, rather than picking a random sample, and that it would be more influential if the universities involved and the decision was made that 10 would be chosen, would be ones that had been selected by the Mellon Fellows, those who had gotten funds from Mellon before, who had, were free to decide wherever it was they wanted to go. And so that was taken as a kind of market test. If students really wanted to go places, the universities that they chose were thought to be those that would be, that is, good students wanted to go places, the ones where such a, an experiment would be usefully undertaken. I'm sure you could guess which the 10 universities were. They were Berkeley and Chicago and Columbia and Cornell and Harvard and Michigan and Penn and Princeton and Stanford and Yale. They were then institutional leaders. They're now institutional leaders. All of them had wonderful students and all suffered from the problems that the GEI was supposed to fix. They all had long times to degree, they all had high attrition rates, and they all exhibited other problems that I mentioned earlier, such as um, somewhat disorganized graduate programs and faculty members who, for one reason or another, might ha not have been as, as um, nurturing as they might have been. Now, lest you think that 10 universities don't tell you very much, they do. These 10 universities produce about one-fifth of all PhDs in the humanities. So that's pretty substantial. 
It's a big sample of PhD producers, even if it's one which is sort of tilted to the high end of the quality spectrum. spectrum. As I said, there were 49 departments. They, had, they were chosen by the deans and provosts. They had to agree not simply to provide data to the foundation, but also to look at their programs and try to think about how to become more effective. I don't know whether English was in the, the graduate education program, and um, there at Columbia, this is all you know, not private, it was uh, English, art history, music, religion, um, and um, not history, um, anthropology. Um, so these departments had to, on their own, decide how they were going to make themselves more effective than they had been. Some institutions chose the departments based on which ones had the biggest problems. Others chose the ones who were, in fact, better on the time to degree um, measurement and better on the attrition measurement as a way of rewarding them for having a good record. What that left us with was a really a conjuries of departments, some of which had high attrition rates, some less. Some had briefer times to degree, although they were all pretty long, some longer times to degree. The latitude that the departments had to make changes, in addition, produced a lot of variation. So from the standpoint of a social science experiment, a lot of different things were being done to a lot of different students who came to the table with very different characteristics. It's not an ideal research design. Um, but since the commitment was that we would not interfere, as we sh would never have done, with what the universities were doing and how they were teaching, um, that was sort of part of the game. There were a couple of other requirements, aside from what those I've mentioned. Funds for the students could not be given any time after their sixth year. The notion was that um, that would be an incentive for them to finish. That rule was, I think, honored mostly, but not entirely. When someone, when a dean called me up and say, said, what should I do about the student who has to learn Russian and Chinese, and also for this dissertation would be better off having some command of Japanese, I would hardly say they have to do it in six years. I mean, it just wouldn't make sense. In addition, the students were supposed to receive their funds conditionally. That is, only if they met certain timetables for their degrees that their departments would set up, only if they were on time. Well, that didn't last. The departments simply were caught in the competitive uh, strangle among universities, and they offered almost all of them multiple-year guaranteed fellowships so that the students were guaranteed that they would get their money whether or not they 
moved according to the official timetable. Um, so we, there's no way of knowing whether that would have been effective or not. I became worried very early about the effects of the job market on the Mellon enterprise and decided that we had to have some way of assessing whether there would be effects of the bad job market we couldn't somehow separate from the effects of the Mellon program. So we instituted this group of 45 control departments, and I'm not going to take you through the methodological niceties of controls and treatment departments. Um, those of you who read about all kinds of experiments for medications know about controls and treatment individuals. Well, it's the same thing here. The big difference was that the control departments didn't get the melon money and presumably didn't get the benefits of whatever the departments in the melon program uh, were doing for their students. The treatment department students did. The job market would have affected all of them more or less similarly, although there are, were variations among disciplines and how bad it was to try to find a job. So that's why we ended up with a, what is called a controlled pre-post experiment. Now, what were our prime findings? Did the GEI have the effects that it was supposed to? That's the first question. The second is, if it had any effects, which aspects worked and which didn't? Third, could we f say anything about a subject which interested me enormously, which was whether men and women did equally well or not equally well with respect to completing their degrees and doing them fast. As Jim said, I spent some of my life studying men and women scientists, and so it was natural that I would want to see how things were for men and women humanists. And then, how did marriage and parenthood affect their completion rates and times? And last, what is now a question of history, how did those graduates, the ones who finished their degrees between 1989 and 2006, how well did they do on the job market? Now, we can't say anything about what the job market is like now based on what happened to them, but there are some, some foreshadowing there is some foreshadowing of the current situation. Overall, the GEI had very modest effects. That is, time to degree shrunk by less than a year, and more students finished, that is, fewer dropped out, but two hour surprise, they dropped out later rather than earlier. They were, it was supposed to be geared that 
students would be encouraged to leave if they weren't going to finish, leave early rather than late. But in fact, the reverse occurred. We had much more late attrition than early attrition. <coughs> On close observation, what we found was that these modest effects were really averages of some departments doing really well in terms of the measures we used, and some departments not changing at all, and some departments doing worse than they had earlier. So this is a kind of stew, and it's quite clear that the next thing we have to do is look hard at those departments that did well to see if we can find out why they may have done better than their counterparts. Now let me say something about this rise in late attrition. Finding out that there were more students who were dropping out late led us to discover a group or identify a group of students who over the course of the first four to five years of their careers didn't make any progress and didn't leave. We called them languishers. And the languishers, what was even a greater concern, were largely people who had, who had guaranteed multi-year fellowships. If they had four years of fellowships, they stayed for four years and then dropped out. If they had five years of fellowships, they stayed for five years and then dropped out. Well, that does suggest there's some downside to the multi-year guaranteed fellowships. I'll come back to that. There are also upsides, obviously. Mm -hmm. But this certainly revealed a problem none of us had anticipated. But overall, the findings were not completely disappointing. Most students did benefit from more generous funding, and we found that summer funding was really remarkably effective for a very low cost when students could be given, let's say, $3,000 a year to tide them over during the summer so that they didn't have to work as much at jobs that were irrelevant to their graduate work as they had before. Summer funding was a very helpful, very helpful intervention. What we ended up deciding was that better financial support was certainly a requirement, but it was no guarantee that students would finish or that they would finish quickly. In fact, some students with the best financial aid packages, five years worth of fellowships, dropped out. That's expensive. It's expensive for the university um, and expensive for them. Now, many of the other GEI effects that we observed had to do with programmatic changes, and I'll take you through a few of them, which seem surprisingly, oh, I guess I would say primitive, but nonetheless worked. Clarifying expectations, being, being taught, having students know that they had to do a series of tasks by a given date, and that they were expected to complete their degrees within a given period of time, and that this was written down. Seems primitive, but in departments where they had these kinds of 
clear understandings, the students were more likely to finish and to finish, if not quickly, at least more quickly than in departments where either there were no such rules or nobody paid attention to them. Introducing more advising, which not all departments did, but those that did, introducing more advising and earlier advising. Having students have close-up conversations with faculty members about their work early in their careers was also related to more completion and faster completion. Faculty members are very powerful influences on their, their students. Um, I didn't know whether to feel that was wonderful, which as a former faculty member I would have felt, or whether to feel that the ones who were powerful but nonetheless didn't give the students the kinds of straightforward encouragement they might have gotten. At least this isn't the Philharmonic. <laughs> um, made a big difference. And then decreasing the size of departments, decreasing the number of students admitted had a very positive effect. Most of the universities had begun, just at the time the GEI started, to shrink the number of students that they were admitting. And they did that because they wanted to be able to provide at least better funding for the students that they admitted. And in addition, they were already aware that the job market was getting bad. So that by the 1980s, um, it was quite clear that the pro employment prospects were not going to be very good. Um, and so universities cut down on the number of students that they admitted, the 10 universities we worked with. The reason why that worked certainly was not predicted. As I said, there are reasons why small departments might be more congenial to graduate students and help push them along. Quite true. We also found that as the number of students being admitted was reduced, their qualifications improved. That is, when you admit 10 students rather than 25, you're picking the ones who come with better GRE scores, better grades, and so forth. And having better GRE scores and better grades in college was associated with, like it or not, getting your degree and getting it more quickly. A whole series of other changes that were made, at least we couldn't detect any effects that they produced. That doesn't mean they didn't have good effects on some people. Doesn't mean that uh, they had, didn't have effects at all. It meant that our ability to detect these effects was simply not sufficiently strong to be able to point at them and say, this is what really counted. Well, so much for what worked. Let me turn to the, what happened to the men and women students. As I said, that 
has been an issue of continuing interest for me. Um, and in the humanities, it's of particular interest because more than any other fields in the arts and sciences, women have entered the humanities in far greater numbers and there are far more women graduate students in these fields than there are in others. Now, in principle, there shouldn't be any difference in how well women students do in their graduate studies and how well men do. But in practice, the men finished faster and they were more likely to finish. And that, of course, led me to really look very hard at the data. And what it, it became evident that that is a very crude way of describing the findings because it didn't take into account marriage and family. What we found was that men and women who were single had pretty much the same records. They were as likely to finish or not. They were as likely to finish quickly or not. Moreover, women who were single and married women who were single, I mean married women, had more or less the same outcomes. It was those married men who were faster and more likely to finish. Um, my co-author, Ron Ehrenberg, likes to say that the lesson to be drawn is that all graduate students need wives. Well, I'm not sure that that's the lesson to be drawn. It's certainly the case that um, it doesn't hurt to have someone who's perhaps earning a living while you're studying, and it doesn't hurt to have someone encouraging you. And furthermore, it may be that the men felt more driven to continue to, to finish up, given their family responsibilities. So there was, in fact, no gender difference, at least that you could trace to gender. It was marriage and men that made the difference. Now, what about the effect of children? It's very often said, in fact, there's a dean at the University of California at Berkeley who speaks about the um, absence of family-friendly university policies and that women are particularly victims of these unfriendly policies of graduate schools. Well, we first looked at people who had children when they started graduate school. Again, having children if you're a woman didn't mean it took you any longer than if you didn't have children and you were a woman. Of course, this, when I say of course, this didn't affect people who we called single, who, did, who checked off the box saying that they were single. I don't know what their family situations were. We would never know. But it was the married men who had children who, again, were faster and more likely to finish. That then leaves, I think, two conclusions to draw. One is that as far as women are concerned, marriage doesn't slow them up. Being single doesn't make things easier. They are more or less the same. 
For men, marriage does speed things up. So being a single man may put you at a disadvantage, and the monastic life may not be as conducive to scholarship as it was thought to be in the medieval period. But just let me say one more thing about an aspect of the Mellon program, and that is we thought that and I'm going back to funding largely because my pages got out of the right order, and not for your, because of you, Jim. Um, I thought that making it available to students, completion, dissertation completion fellowships, fellowships in their last year, would for sure really make things better, that it would speed people up, that it would help them complete their degrees. Alas, alas, the data don't show it. And I still think that having a dissertation completion fellowship is, if not a requirement, certainly something that eases students' path along the way. Um, I was disappointed, and um, I think I have been um, essentially... Um, I've decided in this case that the data simply are faulty and or inadequate and we just don't have enough information to say. Now, what happened to the PhDs, the people who actually got degrees, the people who, that half who didn't drop out, who made it through the degree, what happened to them? As I said, they provide a kind of um, historical footnote to the current situation. There was a scarcity of jobs then. Right out of graduate school, three months after graduate school, proportion of the people that got their degrees who got tenure-track jobs fell from 1989 to, uh, to, to, to 2006. Not only that, the proportion of people who got any kind of job in a four-year institution fell from the first part of the period to the end. Understandably, people who got degrees and who were looking for jobs then were more likely to take non-tenure track jobs and more likely to take postdoctoral fellowships if they could find them. When we went back and looked at them, what happened to them three years after, more of them had gotten tenure track jobs about 60% of those who had had non-tenure-track jobs earlier got a tenure-track job. Well, that can be read in a number of ways. It can say, yeah, there's a lot of mobility that occurs, and that people who start out in non-tenure-track job had a pretty good chance of getting a job of the kind they, I mean, a full-time job, a tenure-track job in a four-year institution. 
but it also can be read that 40%, three years after their degrees, didn't have a tenure-track job. So the entry-level job market was deteriorating, and so was the job market three years out. Now, you might ask the question, which we did, as to whether people who finished their degrees quickly got better jobs. Um, my colleagues at Mellon were absolutely convinced that the quick finishers were the better students, and they would be the ones who got the better jobs. And um, furthermore, that a little sort of number tinkering was done, and we looked at the time to degree of the um, assistant professors in a number of major departments. And it looked like they had gotten their degrees faster than the average. Well, that turns out not to be true. Time to degree um, is more complicated, the effects of time to degree. If you get your degree within seven years of starting, it makes no difference whether you get it in four years or five years or six years or seven years. It's after eight years that the job market becomes really very, very challenging. Now, it could be that, um, that it is simply the outcome of a preference of departments for people who are, you know, fresher, fresher products, like fruit that hasn't gotten stale. Um, I think most people believe that, um, that if people are, if PhDs are too far away from their, the time they started, their degree isn't as up-to-date, so to speak, as the ones who finished earlier. It's also true that people who published were more likely to get tenure-track degrees, I mean, te tenure-track jobs. That's not surprising. And it seems to take a little while that if you do your degree in four or five years, your chance to publish before you get your degree are slimmer so that a slightly longer degree and a higher rate of publication go together and that's conducive to getting a, a tenure-track job. Now, as I said earlier, the overall effects of the Mellon program were modest. Why? Well, this experiment didn't take place in a vacuum. The Mellon program became contagious. Um, put another way, the provosts and the deans decided that they liked the Mellon program, and so departments which were not part of the Mellon program got more money, and they were encouraged to make changes like the Mellon departments, and so our, our experimental and control design essentially fell by the wayside, or at least to put it more responsibly, the control departments and the treatment departments became much more alike than we ever anticipated that they would. Now that's understandable. The provosts and the deans felt very uncomfortable having some of their departments support students much better than others in the same general field. 
So they used their resources, and in the process, um, in some ways, I think paid the Mellon Enterprise a great compliment, and we could hardly tell them not to do what they were doing, but it certainly did interfere with the research. Now, we also know from the survey that the poor job market did slow people down. They told us as much. There they were, had finished their degrees, but decided that they would not apply to get the degree because without a job, they'd lose their health insurance, they'd lose their housing, they'd lose their library privileges, and they might also lose the chance to have a kind of teaching job which they could get in their own institution, which they couldn't get if they went off and went on to the market as the language goes. Um, this was not a propitious time to try the GEI intervention. The, the job market really did interfere. The third reason for the modest effects is those multi-year guaranteed fellowships. They did increase attrition, and while they did make students less anxious, and we are told it made them more collegial, that they competed less with one another, they didn't steal one another's notes in the same way that we heard that some students did, um, they nonetheless um, have their downsides. And their downsides, aside from the increased attrition, is that they make departments take very big bets on students before these students ever arrive on the scene. You have, as a department, said, this student, this student, and this student, we will pay for, for four or five years. And that really makes it impossible to take students whose records may not be stellar, that is, undergraduate records, but who you have the feeling could do very well. That kind of ad student has been essentially, if not frozen out of the top graduate schools, will have a very hard time getting in because they don't admit students without these large fellowship packages. And then there was one more reason why the Mellon program had modest effects, and that is there were certainly faculty members who resisted it, who said, and they said it quite openly, that for them it was more important that their students do as good a dissertation as they could do, and if that took time, well, so be it. That they were not going to put up with being told by outsiders that they should speed their students up. I love the phrase that one, one prof uh, in one letter I got that a professor at one of these institutions said that the dissertations of students who finished too quickly were undercooked. And so the faculty in these places see themselves, they see themselves as the, the trainers of the best young scholars, and they were not fully on board. So we learned money made a difference, departmental procedures made a difference, students who don't complete um, until the seventh year are not going to have a major problem. 
But, and I haven't gotten at all into the issue of what long times to degree and high attrition rates cost. They cost universities a lot. They have to pay tuition and fellowship money for students who don't finish. They cost in faculty time. Those of you who are faculty members, if you've had, as I did, when I think of my student who took 14 years to complete, um, it took a lot of my time. And so that has to be figured in. Many people say that why should one care if it takes a student 14 years? After all, it's their business. Well, it isn't only their business. It's the university's business and the faculty's business. So where do I come out? I come out in saying that graduate education in the humanities, as it is in all the arts and sciences, is really a demanding business. It's demanding of the students. It's demanding of the faculty. It's embedded in unbelievably complicated institutions. And it's subject to all kinds of outside pressures that can't be controlled. There is no single magic bullet for improving graduate education in the humanities, which is not to say that it isn't worthwhile. Thank you. I have a yes, yes, sure. Let me uh, uh, thank uh, our speaker for uh, a very, very excellent summary of the research that was done and some particularly valuable insights on the future of PhD education in Let me say a couple of things. Uh, there will be copies of the book available for sale uh, at the back of the room. Second, there will be an opportunity to have something to eat and drink and have us to speak, to, to speak with each other and the speaker about the book. I want to uh, mention two things. One, the libraries at Columbia, thanks to the Mellon Foundation, have been over, uh, made possible over the last few years to hire uh, 39 uh, PhD students in humanities largely uh, who have helped us with the processing of special collections. Uh, but we've also been able to provide them with summer stipends uh, to sort of bridge that period of time, which they may not have fellowship, and also uh, providing them with perhaps an entree to an alternative to tenure-track faculty appointments, actually work in the library with their PhD degree. And thankfully, we've been able to recruit uh, many, many individuals uh, with PhDs in humanities to work in the libraries at Columbia. Secondly, we have a grant that we just received uh, from the Delmas Foundation, and from the Council on Library Information Resources to look at whether library intervention in the career of a PhD student in humanities can make a difference in terms of uh, attrition rates and in terms of time to degree. Uh, that'll be a very interesting study. I'm sure everyone's anxiously waiting for the results of that investigation. But I think we'll contribute some insight as to why graduate students uh, in humanities sometimes don't finish and how long sometimes it takes a while. So we have an opportunity for a few questions uh, for Dr. Zirkin. Yes. Yes. I, I was wondering what you knew about the students as individuals. In other words, whether there was any kind of a questionnaire that delved into them as individuals. Yes. Uh, well, I'm not sure this will tell you as them as individuals. We know where they went to college. We know where they came from. We know what their ages are. We know how they, f in fact, how satisfied they were about it with their graduate study. We know whether they thought their professors paid sufficient attention to them, how often they met with their graduate 
advisors. We know, as you, as I said, what kind of jobs they got. We know which ones were married at the beginning of graduate school, which ones were married at the end. We knew how many children they had. Um, what I don't, we don't know anything about what kinds of personal um, disasters they may have experienced through graduate study. Um, that seemed a little intrusive to ask. And I know from having talked to deans that some students really, you know, went through some truly bad patches. But that's the kind of personal information we had. Did you have something particularly in mind? No, I was just, it, it may not be something one could quantify, but um, I was thinking about how driven they are, and I, that's not the kind of thing that one could really no, quantify. No, I visited over the course of the 10 years of the program, I visited every university at least three, oh, I'm sorry, at least three times. And I insisted on meeting with a group of graduate students without faculty present, just to ask them about how things were going. Now, that doesn't mean that I was naive enough to think that the students weren't handpicked that I saw. Um, they were pretty driven. And they, you know, as driven as the graduate students I remember. And, uh, you know, these, being a graduate student is in one way a very pleasant life and in another way a really awful life. And um, so you'd think they'd want to get out of it as fast as they could, but that wasn't the case. Yes. Yeah. Harriet, I've been reading the book. It's, it's actually very interesting. Reduce some of the conclusions uh, in your, your talk to something that, as someone who started a PhD program, left and went to business and came back, I thought were defined pretty early for me when I went into business, which is define your responsibilities and make clear your expectations, apply <laughs> appropriate mentorship and training, you recruit selectively, and you know, to some extent you ensure consequences, which you can force attrition at an earlier rate. It seems like for $85 million, you could have you know, gone to a business consultant and said, what's going to work to make to make this happen? Any, any thoughts about that? Um, well, I have to say, I have not, um, this is a new one. <laughs> um, it's, it's interesting that, that you say that. Um, thinking about graduate training in the humanities from the perspective of business is, is something of a, uh, of a taboo. Um, and, well, as you obviously know. And I think that kind of, um, analysis wasn't part of the thinking, despite the fact that Bowen, who was you know, the originator of all of this, is a, uh, still a very active economist. Um, but e economics and business are two very different things. And um, maybe what we really needed was to hire a consultant and have them tell us what we should do. But then we had the problem, what do you do about the recalcitrant faculty? Can you imagine what faculty members in English and history and art history and religion would say if they were told what to do by McKinsey? <laughs> we had to leave it up to them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the 
that larger departments, so short of downsizing themselves, could try and um, replicate some of those environmental conditions in that there existed smaller departments, but somehow a larger department might strive to sort of set those kind of conditions up maybe artificially or deliberately or something like That's that. That's an interesting question. Um, In some way, that occurs already. When I think of that huge department I was a graduate student in, there was a cluster of students who were around all the, all the time and who studied full time and who made themselves into a small student group, even if they were in you know, this teeming mass of uh, other graduate students. Um, I don't know. I, what you're suggesting is that it's a, you're something a little bit like the small schools movement of making, a, you know, changing big schools into a number of very small schools as a way of improving gradu uh, graduate education. It's a very interesting idea. This is not something of a uh, paradox because there can be departments that are too small. You can't offer a really good graduate education um, if there are only four students. I mean, there, there aren't enough people to... You certainly can't have a faculty of a decent size um, unless you have large numbers of undergraduates. So trying to figure out what, what an a optimal size is is interesting, and in addition, trying to organize them in ways that uh, may be conducive to better outcomes is also interesting, but everybody is downsizing, at least in the, in the major universities, and not least because money is so scarce. Yeah? Do you have any <coughs> sense of how, if you were to do the GEI in a global perspective, how the results you got for the states Oh, Is that those systems are so different. Um, the 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 uh, organization of higher education is in the UK. Students essentially, when they sign up for PhDs, don't take courses. They identify their doctoral. Uh, subject, at least other than in Cambridge and Oxford. They identify what they're going to do their doctorate on, and then they just do it. There aren't courses that they have to take. In France, of course, it's a national system, and um, all I know is, is that the, the European countries are very busy trying to make their graduate education like ours, and Whatever troubles we have, um, they seem to be minor compared to the, those faced by the Italians and by the French and by the German. And in Scandinavia, God, the time to degree is because they're welfare states and graduate students are paid. It can take 20 to 25 years for a student to get a doctoral degree in Scandinavia.
thank you for being here this evening. Thank, thank you for coming. Again, copies of the books are for sale, and please stay for something to eat and drink. Thank you for being here. Now, I took your I just had one sheet that I left. Yes, you did. Yes, thank I you. almost had it among all of my papers. Thank you. Wonderful summary of the book. You know, the book in itself is, is uh, social, from a social science perspective, intimidating.